Welcome back to another episode of Appalachian Anglican. I'm Caleb and I'm here with Adam. And I'm Daryl. And uh, if it sounds a little weird today, uh, we're now starting to record in our new location. Woo! Woo! So. Much nicer echo. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely uh, a little more, a little more uh, echo happening here. But you know what? I think it's going to be in the recording. So, you know what? We'll, we're working on it. We're fixing it. And you know what? Just be patient with us, all right? I'm just one man. I'm trying my best out here. Thank you, Caleb. You, but it, there is a bright side to it all because the uh, very thing that causes the echo is also the very thing that keeps people from being choked out by the incense. <sighs> that is true. So, it's, you know, you win some, you lose some. I'll take the incense, though. That's right. Well, what was our what was our topic for today here that we're going to be discussing this day, this very day? We're going to make a difference, a delineation here between sola scriptura and nuda scriptura. What? Now, so let me let me let me tell you what they are, Caleb. Are you ready? I hold on. Yeah, I'm ready now. Okay, okay. A lot of ways that sola scriptura gets presented, especially when it's being argued against by Roman Catholic apologists, isn't really sola scriptura. It's something that you would call nuda scriptura, the naked text, a naked reading of the text. It is very much how many American Christians read their Bibles. And they say, no, I believe in sola scriptura. I don't believe in tradition. That's not that's not how sola scriptura is to be understood. It's not? No, it's not. In fact, they're engaged in nuda scriptura, a naked reading of the text. And so I thought what we could do to help people kind of unpack this a little bit is to talk about the relationship between scripture and tradition, but then to really use some examples of the nuda scriptura reading of the text, which when we point it out is going to be really difficult in some ways because it's the common way many people read scripture. Does that make sense? No, I think it, you might you might make a lot of people upset. I'm already kind of getting upset. What is sola fide? By faith alone. Yeah, you're yeah. saved by faith alone. <laughs> if somebody says they don't believe in sola fideism, it's all one word. The the ism is important here. Sola fideism. What are they saying they don't believe in typically? Maybe you've never heard that phrase. When they say that, repeat the question. That they don't believe in sola fideism. That their actions matter. That's exactly what they're saying. Sola fide doesn't mean that works aren't part of a Christian life. Sola fide means I'm not saved by my works, I'm saved by my faith, and my faith is evidenced through my works, all of which come by being grafted into Christ, right? Sola fideism says, well, I made a profession of faith, I'm saved by faith, therefore I have to do nothing. It's exactly what James says is not true. So you'll find a rise of sola fideism amongst those who think that James is, is an epistle of straw. Okay, well, not to be in the canon. <laughs> yes, that was mm-hmm. a hint, but uh, Luther... Anyway, let's. We're, I don't want to get into that. Sola Scriptura doesn't deny tradition, doesn't deny the role of the church. Nuda Scriptura does. Sola Scriptura does not permit private interpretations of Scripture. Nuda Scriptura does. Well, the Holy Spirit told me, I read it in my Bible. Therefore, God spoke to me. I'm going to leave the church. I'm going to deny the doctrine of the Trinity. I'm going to deny the, the means of grace of baptism. I'm going to deny that the, the Eucharist is the body and blood of Jesus because the Holy Spirit told me I read it in my Bible and the church, I don't need to listen to the church because the church gets it wrong and tradition, well, I don't need the traditions of men. That's all nuda scriptura. Solo scriptura says, 
the scriptures are the infallible word of God. I mean, it's it's the word of God. It's and it's the final authority to settle our disputes. The scripture teaches that baptism and Eucharist are definitive means of grace. The scripture teaches the doctrine of the Trinity. The scripture teaches all the things I just mentioned, right? But we could say the scripture teaches them because of sola scriptura and we know the scripture teaches them, we have great assurance the scripture teaches them, not just because it's clear to anybody who reads, because the Trinity isn't, baptism isn't, some things aren't clearly evident to everyone who reads it, but it's the consensus teaching of the church that this is what the scripture has meant. So that even though we don't read about, uh, you know, Justin Martyr or St. Irenaeus or Ignatius using all of the nuance and language that Nicaea will use for the doctrine of the Trinity— we have great confidence that the way Nicaea has to articulate the doctrine of the Trinity is because they have been believing it and they're dealing with the present issue. The relationship between scripture and tradition is so bound together, especially in the early centuries in this way. Um, I think the Eastern Church does a pretty good job of, of presenting these two two aspects, but we do well to 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 keep them as two aspects. They're distinct, even though they're they're connected with each other. The sola scriptura reading of scripture is what we advocate as part of the Reformation. So does that make sense? It does. And I think the the biggest thing that comes to mind, or that I think you have to question, is when the idea of like sola scriptura mm-hmm. in its original, so we're not talking about what it has developed into, but rather um, kind of at its core. Yeah. I, I know in many ways it's neither here nor there, but I think I think do think of the origin is important. What did they mean by it? The definition that you gave earlier or... Yeah. Where were they at with that? The reformers were saying that only matters that can be proven through scripture are matters of dogma first. Um, secondly, or, or um, uh, day for day, matters of the faith. We've talked about that in episodes yes. in the past. But they're also saying that the authority that settles disputes is the scripture, i.e. not the councils or, especially at the time, the papacy or a magisterium that's infallible. So as Anglicans, we do not we have a magisterium, a capital M because the Latin word teacher is Maestro. Yeah. That, 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 no. That, that, that's pretty close, <laughs> buddy. That's pretty close. The magisterium, the magister, magistrates, right? Magister. So the the teaching office of the church, when the church teaches collectively on any given topic. The magisterium. As Anglicans, we have magisterium, we just don't believe it's infallible. It can make mistakes. That's in the that's in the articles. Contrast uh, nudo scriptura, like you know that here here it is on the, the the left. I don't mean anything political here. Okay, here's here's nudo scriptura on the left. Solo scriptura is in the middle. Okay, come over to the right, and what do you have there? But you have the claims of Roman Catholicism that tradition and the magisterium, which is in, includes the papacy, those are equal authorities to scripture. Classically, that's what they have. That's what they would have said. Okay, now. The nudus scriptura hermeneutic, if you could even call it that, but that that naked reading of scripture that's so prevalent in many churches looks at sola scriptura as it was defined and articulated by the reformers, and they confuse that with a, a medieval Roman Catholicism by saying, oh, well, because you say I have to listen to the church, you're mu- you must be saying there's another authority other than scripture that I have to listen to, and that that authority is equal to scripture. I don't listen to tradition, I just listen to scripture. That's nuda scriptura, when it doesn't work. 
which is why you have a fracturing and a bleeding of so many different kinds of denominations that exist. If you go back and you read the debate that and the, and the, the verbal exchange, but debate's a good way of, of describing it, between Eck and Luther, when they went back and forth about the nature of Scripture and authority in the church, Eck basically says, Luther, if people read the Bible the way that you're talking about, then, and the Bible's the authority and there's no church to, to interpret it, then you're going to end up with schisms and, and, and factions all over the place. Well, Eck is correct, but Luther wasn't arguing for a nuda scriptura, not in, the, not in the way it gets presented now. He definitely are arguing for sola scriptura, right? Bring this into the, the Anglican context and look at our 39 articles. It's clear that the, in the articles, which is magisterial, because the articles exist because the church wrote them as a means of understanding the scripture, one, and two, creating consistency amongst all the churches, says the church has authority to make decisions and decrees about ceremonies and rites, etc., etc. Well, where do they get the basis that they have the authority to make those decisions? But from scripture, as opposed to saying, no, we have, we've had visions or we've had dreams or we've had whatever people want to say they've had to say why they can make the decisions they are about the church or about the way they live their Christian lives. Nuda Scriptura is at its base, a quintessentially American hermeneutic. Because it says privatized interpretation is the most divinely inspired. And that's what you end up with. The scripture was written as God's personal love letter to me, and I read it without the wisdom of the church to help me interpret it. Which is why you get so many devotional readings of scripture that then get raised up to actual interpretations of what the text means. And that's just, that's really, really dangerous. And it happens too much, especially in churches that should know better, i.e. those that hold to the historic succession. So it's very difficult when you watch a Roman Catholic apologist like my buddy Mitch Pacwa. Uh, for those who don't know, Father Mitch Pacwa is a Roman Catholic priest who teaches Scripture and Traditional on EWTN. And I've had a, I've had a radio conversation with him back when I called in on the radio on the, the Fridays for they listen to non-Catholics. This is like 10, 11 years ago. <laughs> and I, I said, uh, my question was, how do you know if a Marian apparition was really Mary or a demon? To which he answered the question, very, very good. Uh, which surprised me. You know, I didn't realize that they had an answer. And it, it was like the way Pentecostals judge experiences too, which made it even better at the time. Um, and then we've had some email correspondence. But when Mitch Pacwa goes to describe Sola Scriptura and condemn it, I've said to the television, because he can't hear me, I've said, Mitch, <laughs> if that's what Sola Scriptura is, I don't believe it either. And neither does the Anglican communion. <laughs> Even though you're quoting the 39 articles, that's not what we believe. You're describing Nuda Scriptura. But if you go ask the average evangelical what Sola Scriptura is, they will describe functionally what is Nuda Scriptura and turn Sola Scriptura into some sort of uh, there's other authorities equal to Scripture kind of idea. And that's just not true. Yeah, I think definitely the difficulty is people are saying the same thing, but people are not saying the same thing where you, you know i do not think that word means what do you think it means yes it's a classic miscommunication mm -hmm. yeah yeah I, we have to well let me put it this way take take a couple examples of the way things are read in a new scriptura sense because if you uh oh the the german the seat seem laban the situation in life so there's big emphasis on getting back into the original context the original situation behind why certain texts were written so you got an idea of what's going on that's really important we want to make sure that we have a, a historical reading of the text like that to know what they're describing. But because this is the Word of God, the application transcends the immediate context. How do you know that spiritual meaning of the text without the wisdom of the church to help guide how you read it? So let me give an example. 
There was some years back a teacher at a very prominent evangelical university, maybe seminary, who was let go for insisting that the Old Testament needed to be read through the lens of the Lord, that the Old Testament was about Jesus. And because uh, this guy had insisted upon that, the seminary let him go because they said, no, you have to read it in a... I don't know if they said historical grammatical way, meaning you study the history and the grammar, but you had to read it in a way that did not anticipate Christ, just to reduce the material here for that purpose. When that happens, you're no longer reading the Old Testament as types and shadows. So you're negating even the principle that's in Hebrews and then the Lord's comments in the Gospels. Where is the first Eucharist in the Bible? Jeopardy music's playing. And we're talking sola scriptura here, not new to scriptura. Where's the first Eucharist in the Bible? Passover for the nope. Okay, well, hold on. Uh, okay, let me put it this way. I have so many. I have so many. Got, like, let, let me let me let me let me, uh, let me try to tweak the question a little bit. Where is the first? Yeah, where's the first Eucharist in the Bible that is not an animal sacrifice? Maybe does that help? Melchizedek, the account in Genesis okay. Melchizedek. Okay. Because what does Melchizedek give Abraham? Bread and wine. And what does Abraham give Melchizedek? A half tithe. Offer, a tithe. Yeah. A tithe. Specifically the tithe. Yep. Now, Hebrews refers to the tithing passage about uh, Levi tithing, right? right, That kind of uh, bringing up Levi and, and being in, in Abraham still at that point. Gets into that with types and shadows. Bread and wine is what the Lord establishes as his body and blood as he's fulfilling the animal sacrifice. So where's the first animal sacrifice in Scripture? And it's by implication. Leaving the garden, correct? Right. Genesis 3, when God gives them animal skins to wear. So he had to kill the animal. So where does Cain, Abel get the idea that he should offer sacrifice, but Cain offers grain? Well, Abel's honored because he's keeping mm-hmm. the precedent God himself creates leaving the garden. If you if you go for a naked reading of scripture, you would say, ah, oh, that's just, that stuff. No, you're making that up. No, you've got to read the canon of scripture as one canon of scripture. And one of the principles in Solo Scriptura is that Scripture interprets Scripture and that Jesus is the telos of the whole Scripture. And it's all about him, like he says on the way to, to Emmaus. If you go with a naked reading of Scripture, you would come back and you would say, no, no, that's just about Abraham. And this is only one example. Like we can mm-hmm. go into other ways to where that naked reading of Scripture gets very, very, very dangerous to Christian doctrine because it starts to dismantle what the church has taught with one voice. And uh- I think realizing, especially reading the fathers, I mean, read the book of Hebrews and you can see that a sterile reading or an isolated reading of the text is not what is happening there. Like it is a very different form of interpretation. And I remember uh, in Bible college learning how, I'm putting air quotes, learning how to interpret the text. But what's happening is you're dismantling. It's only grammatic and historic um, when even when reading narrative, Old Testament narrative, and I st- I I had an issue with that. I'm like, because if the apostles were interpreting the text in the same way that you're trying to teach me, we would have we wouldn't have the majority of the New Testament, right? Like any like the epistles, throw those out because how do, how does he come to these conclusions? You yep, it they don't exist. So either they had permission to interpret text in a completely different way that died then. So you're, you know, it's a form of cessationalism, like, yeah, you know, yeah. you know, like you have to logically have to follow it through. 
Um, so I just, I, I looked at him like, there's no way if I interpret the Bible like this, I, I'm not saying I have the authority that the apostles had. That's not what I'm saying. So don't, you know, you but sure? 100%, <laughs> 100% sure I do not. So we'll okay. cl- clarify that one, but I, there's no way you'll get anywhere close or you'll even understand. And then as you look that it, that didn't stop there. And you look at how the early church fathers are interpreting in their form of like exegeting passages and stuff like that. It, it, it's obvious that that form of interpreting scripture continues out beyond those apostles and is moving into the early church. And I think it was more than just a cultural way of interpreting the text. I tell you one of the ways to apply is not the right word. One of the ways to, to open the idea more for people is a misunderstanding of Wesley in this regard. And because you're talking about interpretation, Wesley said he was a man of one book and he said, you know, we should be, we should be people of one, we should be people of one book, a man of one book. But anyone who knows Wesley's practice knows that the man had a prayer book. Well, that's a second book. And then he read from the church fathers every morning when he celebrated morning prayer or the Eucharist. So there's a bunch of other books. So what does he mean when he says he's a man of one book? There's sola scriptura right there. This book of scripture is God's word, but I don't rely upon my own understanding to interpret it. And I don't rely upon my, my group of my friends to interpret it. We appeal to the consensus of the entire church, both for its interpretation and its meaning. So when you're talking about being a Bible college and getting, here's how you interpret scripture. I remember in the different hermeneutics classes I've had, and they were really, really good at doing the historical grammatical side of things. Even inductive Bible study principles were really good. And, and it's very good to start there. But very often, courses like that don't insist upon going back and looking for how has the church understood these passages through history. No, it, it's very true. That was the, those were the issues I was having with it, or even in many ways it was using the text to interpret what was being said alone rather than even the full canon. And listen, I'm not saying, no, you can't use the context of the actual verses to say what this is saying, because obviously like that's literature 101. You don't read a sentence, read it at face value and be like, this is what it means. Completely opposite of what the rest of the text is reading. Yeah. That's not what I'm saying. It's, it's more of general rule of thumb or using the rest of the canon. But that, that was an, I think that was a, an example of, reading it put like the 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 new script scriptura without even realizing that was happening with underneath the sword of sola scriptura right right it it is a it is a genuinely bare reading of the text that is not just about improperly applying principles of spiritualizing the text or allegory we're not we're not even getting into that per se but to to see that this reading of scripture without the wisdom of the church leads you into error is what happens when you do a naked reading of Scripture. Let me give you an example. One of the other principles of, of the Reformation and Sola Scriptura is that the clearer portions of Scripture explain the less clearer portions of Scripture. Okay, So that requires then that you have to know the body of Scripture to understand what's clear and unclear. In 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul talks about baptisms for the dead, what's he talking about? What's he talking about, Caleb? For baptism of the dead? Yeah, he says, what about those who are baptized for the dead if there's no resurrection? That's all he says, by the way. Uh, I don't know. Pulling the bodies out of the graves and just giving them once over, just in case. <laughs> uh, okay. Do you know? He's referring to their practice of baptizing the dead, correct? No. Guess what he's talking about? Nobody knows. 
Because the Mormons okay. have said, no, this is baptism by proxy. So you're being baptized on behalf of somebody who died. So they have this whole, that's where Ancestry.com comes from, by the way. We don't do that, do we? No, we don't okay. do that. Okay. Whatever it is he's talking about, the early church doesn't even know. Because it was something that so quickly popped up and disappeared. There's nobody knows what he's talking about. If you go with a now go with a naked reading of scripture, guess what you should probably do? Baptize for the dead. But is Dig that is that something the rest of scripture speaks to? No. no. So you wouldn't take that to interpret Romans six or Titus three. You would take those passages to interpret First Corinthians fifteen. And when you come back to it, you say, well, it looks like they had some practice going on there that Paul neither condemns nor condones, but simply says, guys, this is pointless what you're doing over here if there's no resurrection and it doesn't last. So there's an example of how the clearer passages interpret the less clear. And and I don't know of any any Orthodox or Roman Catholic scholar who would argue that point, but we bring it up because it was a point the Reformation had to insist upon so that you don't end up with naked reading of Scripture which has became more and more popular, especially as eisegesis became more and more the approach of revival preaching. I don't, we don't interpret the whole of Scripture. We just have snippets of Scripture that we thread together improperly to create doctrines about things that aren't true. And we have to, in a very, in a very real way, wrestle sola scriptura away from a church that's gone into this other error. And to teach, you no, know, we believe in the authority of the Bible— and because we believe in the authority of the Bible, we believe in the authority of the church because the Bible says that the church is the pillar of truth in the world. And because we believe in the authority of the church, that means we listen to the traditions and what the church tells us to do. Not because it's perfect, but because the authority of the church is established by scripture. That is sola scriptura. Nuda scriptura says, me and Jesus, we got our own thing going. Me and Jesus, we got it all worked out. And everybody... Everybody from several decades back and certain Pentecostal churches knows the lyrics to that song I just quoted. <laughs> I, have a, I have a question for you then. Okay. Um, not off the, the song lyrics, but oh, okay. off right. the general idea. Sola Scriptura, let's just say that's a very descriptive name, I think, it, it, of, the, of the idea. How... Let me think how to articulate this. Okay. This, it's unscripted, by the way. This folks. is un- completely... If this is not a sign, this is uh, unscripted. <laughs> yep. I'll pull up the teleprompter real quick. Yeah, Kevin, I'll you pull that out for me. Let's turn it on right now. That, that's good. Caleb, while he's thinking. So, okay. 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 Right. okay. So, sola scriptura, only scripture. Yeah. How has sola scriptura not gone to its name, what its name means, versus did they just mislabel it? Like, oh, did, did they not you. use the best definition? Because it's like, you look at like nuda scriptura, sola scriptura, it sounds like you're saying the same let thing, was, you, or was it just a mislabeling? Uh, no. Yeah, let me let me give you a real clear contemporary example in a different field of study altogether. Are you ready? Always. MAGA. MAGA. What's MAGA? Make America Great Again. Okay. Typically, on, <laughs> typically seen on a red hat or shirt. Okay, all right. Now, what does that mean? The, the implication or... The implication is that America is not good now. <laughs> the the implication uh, or what it is associated with or... Now, you see instantly what it means is entirely dependent upon the political body that you're associated with and the subunits that are within those various political bodies determine what that means, whatever the context is, or, or what determines what the meaning is based upon their own context. The same thing happens with the five solas. 
Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Solus Christus, Sola Fidei. Uh, what's the other one? I can't remember the ones I just said. The five solas. There should be a sixth, though. Sola Ecclesiae. There's only one church. But anyway, um, this is the problem with bite-sized reductionistic appropriations of theology. Uh, Calvinists run into the same problem when Calvin's Institutes gets reduced to TULIP mm. because it's such a horrible reduction that it makes it look like Calvin's advocating for things that he would not. Or to take the Arminian uh, acronym DAISY, which is the contrary. <laughs> Arminius is contrary. I've never heard DAISY. That. You've never heard of that one? No, I That's another topic. But DAISY does the same thing. Or to, when, to talk about Wesley's doctrine of Christian perfection and to talk about perfectionism as something that's bad, it, you're missing Wesley's point especially if you read Wesley's Christian perfectionism through the holiness movement of the late 1800s, because they're not the same. This is what happens with Sola Scriptura. So at the time, they're contending with a whole lot of stuff. Makes a ton of sense. I tell you what, let me illustrate it this way. Maybe this will help folks. I've often found that Marian doctrine and doctrines concerning the saints are most helpful for at least the majority of the people to listen to our podcast. The 39 articles condemn the Romish practice of invoking the saints, okay? And the, the article that condemns condemns this practice also says so because there's no warrant in Scripture for it. Okay, it's not good. Well, what are Romish doctrines of invoking the saints? What does that adjective, Romish, mean? Roman Catholic. There's no such thing as Roman Catholic yet because it's not until the Council of Trent, which is like 16 years later, thereabouts, when the Catholic Church adopts the name Roman Catholic. The city Rome? We call it Romish. Yeah, it's referring to obviously some. There are things that, that they're saying the papacy are in charge of. That's that's one implication. The second is, well, that's in contradistinction to what else? Non-Romish. Non-Romish, which would be everybody. Like, how about the Orthodox? So the article doesn't say anything about the Orthodox invocation of the saints. What does that mean? How does, how are those things explained? And I'm not trying to get into a discussion about the the saints right now, but to point out. The Anglican Communion advocates Sola Scriptura and then writes an article. Well, if we believed in Sola Scriptura, how can you write an article anyway? Because we we misunderstand, we confuse Sola Scriptura with Nuda Scriptura. So the church has authority to interpret and to make statements about things that need to be addressed. And let me just close the loop on that thing about invocation for a second. When the Council of Trent gathers, they condemn abuses in the church for invoking the saints. And we know that there are Anglicans who maintain the practice of seeking the saints' intercession, but they no longer seek the saints to give them things or graces that only God can give. And Trent seems to have heard the critique from that in the articles when they impose it upon their own people. It's a whole other thing to get into the very nuances there and the disagreements people have, because like like everything else, they do. Point being, look at that through a nudo scriptura and a solo scriptura perspective. Even reading, I, I know what is meant when people are saying like the, the, the nudo scriptura. Mm-hmm. But even by their definitions that they give, I'm not saying it is the optimal way to interpret Scripture, but if you're just using Scripture alone to interpret itself versus the opening it up, I don't... In many ways, I do not think that is what is happening in many American Christian churches. That they're not doing... That they're not reading Scripture. But I'm not saying they're doing solo Scriptura either, because if they at least... If at least the text was used... To interpret itself, yeah, you wouldn't end up with the what well, I feel. Mm. You you wouldn't get that. It's it's something else. And I'm sure there's a Latin word that I do not know. My my, my Latin's not very good. 
it doesn't look like what is happening in many of those circles is actually using the text to interpret itself without outside influence. What is happening is there is outside influence that's allowed. It's just instead of it being a scripture, it's whatever that mind thinks of at the time that is reading it. Yeah. Mm. You want a good example of a new to scriptura approach. Look at the way that people read the Bible, interpret the Bible on newspapers. They look at news headlines and that's how they determine what the scripture means, like for end time issues. Oh, well, there's war in Iraq. That means the end's coming. There's global earthquakes and plagues. That means the end's coming. You're, you're not reading scripture correctly. Jesus said those things would continue and they were not signs of the end. It's kind of backwards. Go to the other side. Go, you know, go into the Roman Catholic side for a second and talk about the, the bodily assumption of Mary. Well, that's not in scripture. So from the Anglican teaching here, at the Sola Scriptura perspective, because her bodily assumption is not clearly spelled out in Scripture, it cannot be a matter of day fide. But is the historical record established enough that that is probably what happened? And I say probably, high probability, high probability of what happened. Yes. Is it resonant with Scripture? Yes. Because she wouldn't be the first person that that happened to. Now, there's an example of sola scriptura defining what is going to be day fide doctrine that can affirm something. Like scripture doesn't talk about the speed of light. They're, you know what I'm saying? Like people get all all jazzed up. You bring up Mary of the Saints, right? Because they just get upset. Let's talk about science. Where does the scripture talk about the speed of light? So why do you believe it? Good point. I don't. Belief revoked. I'm going to stop believing in it right now. Get this laptop out of my face. I don't like it. There you go. It's got brightness on it. Right. You get the point, right? Yes. I mean, and I, and I think that kind of cracks open the idea for folks to not read the Bible alone in the sense they're not understanding what the church has said it means. We could even press the issue a little bit more to talk about how you wouldn't know what scripture, what books are supposed to be scripture without the church, without solo scriptura, that principle being at, at work, being the essence, a written essence of the apostolic tradition that's been handed down. So here are these scrolls and here are the practices, the sacraments cut life of the church to go with them and the relationship between them. But how do you settle the disputes? How did the father settle the disputes? But through the argument of what scripture said, they weren't appealing to privatized interpretations. And we, we're just going to have to, I, I know we want to talk about this next week and we'll bring in some more um, application points, but I think this, this is definitive in that it has definitive in the sense that we cannot permit our own studying and reading of scripture to lead us away from the church, but to lead us into the church more completely and to do what we can that the scripture, that the church be submitted to the authority of scripture. I mean, that's the only way that's going to happen. We have to do it on purpose. Yeah, I agree. And I kind of, we've talked about this a little bit even before the, the process throughout history of watching the studying and the interpretation of scripture moving further and further away from the local parish or the local church um, into being isolated little by little, so from you know from the, the church to the monasteries to the academics only, that's where interpretation is happening. I think that's where a lot of this leads to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you if people are wondering, man, am I am I caught up in a new to scriptura understanding of the church? Well, here's a couple or, or of scripture. Here's a couple ways to to practically look at that with even how, we're, how we kick the idea around. Here's one. Does your church confess the creeds? The Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, Athanasian Creed. Do you want me to keep score for a Church of the Ascension? No, no. Or, you know, okay. <laughs> I will. No need for a record card. But it's just so, like, do you, do you keep, uh, does your church confess the creeds? Another one, 
a sola scriptura versus versus nuda scriptura. How does your church understand the sacraments? Do you say there's no sacraments? Do you call them something else? Say, well, come on now, Daryl. You're 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 that's meddling a little bit with those the memorialist perspective. No, I mean it's saying where did moral, memorialism come from from the sacraments? Not from scripture. Not from the history of the church. Not in the bare way that it's that's understood today, the bare memorial, because even that is is almost an oxymoron in some sense. But all of that to point out, there's a just real couple practical examples to ask: How do we read it? How do we interpret it? Do we deny the Trinity? Do we not deny the Lordship of Jesus? I think a, you want to you want to look at a, an academic perspective of Nuda Scriptura. Look at higher criticism. Because they go hacking pieces and portions of scripture away away, or creating canons within canons, all kinds of stuff, under the claim that they want to get to the true canon. So they, they jettison the authority of the church and say, no, we don't have any record that this is actually part of the text of scripture. So they go to interpret scripture without the church, and that, that's, there's an academic example of Nuda Scriptura. And the church for a hundred years now has been more increasingly attuned to that academic voice because they think it's intelligent, uh, the deceitful philosophies Paul warns about. But they, they go to listen to more of that, and then before you know it, your church leaders deny the virgin birth. They deny the physical resurrection. They deny the miracles of Jesus. And so now the church is morphing into this apostate system that Christ will let die out while he continues to preserve his people, you know, and raise them up again. It's a pattern we see in the Revelation. But I think those are ways to to perceive that, that Nuda Scriptura isn't just like a giant church with lights and a fog machine where they're getting like overly hopped up on privatized interpretation. It also has an academic approach. And you can see that in, in things like misappropriated higher criticism. And I don't think that the motivation is to say, I want to make myself more, give myself more power. I think a lot of these ideas come from saying, why would I listen to those guys? They've been wrong. As it's, it's the formula, insert church name here, yeah. has, has failed or is flawed or has erred. Uh, you you insert in there. And that's where a lot of it comes from, to which I would respond with, yeah, they've made mistakes. Sure. It's not, it's not what's being... Look at the 39 articles. The church flat out says the church is error, but the scripture doesn't. So there's another example of why it's the scripture that we appeal to and nothing else. But we don't appeal to the scripture in a way that one, misrepresents the scripture or denigrates the church or denigrates tradition. Nuda Scriptura, when you go to apply it, is is almost, not quite, but it's almost it's the, the interpretation that says, I don't need to observe Lent. What's that got to do with Lent? Why do we celebrate Lent? Correct. The scripture does not command us to celebrate Lent. But who says we should keep it? The church. The church. Yeah. The church. And when did the church start to say that we should keep Lent? Back in the second century, because Irenaeus talks about a fast that took place before Good Friday, before the Lord's Passion. And in Nicaea, they're emphatic about keeping Lent. They call it something else because Lent's an Anglo-Saxon word. But they're emphatic about keeping the fast, that you have to keep it. The scripture says obey the church. The scripture says that if you are unruly, meaning you're not submitted to spiritual authorities... Case in point, keeping things like Lent. If you're not submitted to spiritual authorities, you're not supposed to be part of the church. Well, what is the response with Nuda Scriptura? I don't need the church anyway, because you're all a bunch of fallen apostate people who sin. Don't forget the robes. Yeah, that's right. Uh oh. But you you see how that works. So we don't need to stay in step with each other. We don't need to live as the community of God's people because we have our own privatized and individualized experience. And if that tells me to go to church, then I'll go. 
I don't need to be part of the church because it's the body of Christ. I don't, I don't know if it's going to tell you to go to church. I'll be honest with you. It's pretty convenient sitting at home, reading your Bible and your, you know, your lazy boy. Yeah. I guess you could just watch it on TV or the internet now. Yeah. It's quite nice. Hmm. No, I, I would hope Caleb that folks that listen to this who have more direct questions, specific questions, they send them in uh, because we will continue with this topic next week, which would be the first one. We've never carried one topic into another week. So this is a two-parter? Yeah. I think there's a lot because yeah. it's it's simple, but it's not we have to I think we have to take time and explain this in more specific cases to help people kind of because you have to intentionally disengage from a new scripture reading of script. You you have to do it on purpose to disengage from reading scripture alone like that. You know, why I mentioned the checklist and maybe we'll go into more details about these, these, this specific checklist to help process it. Why do you in all probability believe that baptism doesn't actually convey grace? Why do you believe that the, the body and blood of Christ are not, is not present in the Eucharist? Why would you say that there's no bishops, that that's a creation of tradition and not a creation of that's in scripture? That's something that violates the principle of scripture we talked about, you know, we've mentioned fasting, but there's other principles at work here and when we start to look at the way that this Nudo Scriptura approach to explaining the Bible has impacted people for a few hundred years, then we can intentionally walk away from it and start to move in that solo Scriptura perspective. And when you do that, you will find how much more you radically appreciate tradition, the fathers of the church, the medieval church, the reformers, the folks after the reformers, you appreciate all of that. And then the the context, the continuity of the people of God through history. That's what Sola Scriptura is doing. And if you live in that vein of Sola Scriptura, then you can look at your Orthodox and, and Roman uh, brothers and sisters and appreciate their interpretations and understand that even though you might disagree with their points, you see how those points may be, may be more in line with Scripture, sola scriptura, than even the nuda scriptura that you've been invested in for so long. It's very difficult, but it's very worth it. Alex isn't here today to say this, but I'll go and say it for him via media. <laughs> mm. that, that's his fave. Yes. yes. Yeah. That, that's his, uh, from him. I'm sure he would have said it. So yeah, I'll help him out. Yeah. Let me, so let me wrap it up here with this, with this. If y'all remember, one of the first podcasts we did, first episodes we did, was uh, Vincent of Larens, Vincentian Canon. That is Solo Scriptura. What has the scripture meant everywhere, always, and by all? Mm. It's, his, it's in his combinatory, not commentary, but combinatory. What's been believed and practiced everywhere, always, and by all? Neuter Scriptura rejects everywhere, always, and by all for me and what the Holy Spirit says to me or what the Holy Spirit says to my favorite teacher or preacher whom I follow. Vincent of Larens is Sola Scriptura. Yes, the Scripture is the Word of God, and we, we believe that it speaks what we need it to say. He says this clearly, but how can I know that my understanding of it is what it really means. And he says, because it will be the Catholic consensus of the church everywhere, always, and by all. So let that be a launching pad. And maybe we'll get a couple folks that want to send in specifics that we could kick around, kick around for them. And we don't have to mention you by name. We can, unless you want us to. Like We could. We could start calling people out. I'll dox you. I'll dox you right now if you want. For but, free. No, I'm just kidding. You know, whether it's just a question that you want to put in, uh, you know, if you don't want to be mentioned by name, 
and, and just kind of keep your uh, anonymity there. Yeah, if you, you don't want do me that. to sit there, mention your name, mention your phone number, mention your house address, mention your routing and bank account numbers. Just just let me know. Caleb, I doubt any of them actually thought that was a concern. Oh, okay. That's good, Caleb. If you want them, we can say them. I would recommend not doing it, though. But we do want your questions. Give them over to us. Give them. Well, and, and I'm over. I know we asked, we, we mentioned that a good bit. And we get, we do get questions in, but I think this one, it's not that it's more sensitive. I think it's more ingrained and harder to see. Yeah. Which is why we're emphasizing this part. And also feel free to give example. Like, I saw this. Is this, you know, a new descriptor or is this solo descriptor? Like, that would be a really good example of something for you to give in. Just say, I saw this. What do you think this is? It's good. Absolutely. Well, I think. I think that's good for, I guess you said we're part one, huh? Part one. I think that's good for part one. Wow. Yeah. That's exciting. First. All right. Well, I think that's going to do it for us here today. Again, hopefully the audio isn't, I'm going to try to put this out. It's, this is going to be one of the first times uh, we go ahead and record. And then a few hours later, we'll see if we can go ahead and get this thing kicked out for Friday. So Woo-hoo. this will be fun for me, but we'll see what happens. But, you know, thanks for listening. And uh, once again, I'm Caleb and I'm here with. Adam. And I'm Daryl. And we'll see you all next week.